quick one. If you'd like to support us on our journey to a thousand, please do consider subscribing or following this podcast, wherever it is you're listening to this. Thank you. The time is now. If you're thinking about doing something, you're thinking about changing your life, you're thinking about leaving something, starting something, going somewhere, just go. Start it. Leave it. Be it. Whatever it is, the time is is now. There's no better time than right now to to do the thing. Um, Natalie Campbell, an award-winning serial social entrepreneur and the current co-CEO of Bellu Water. Entrepreneurship is the thing that delivers freedom. And yes, it's partly financial, but it's also in how your time is spent, the people you get to spend your time with, the things that you get to see, the environment that you're in. As an entrepreneur, you get to choose all of that. I wouldn't say that aren't welcoming, but being in environments where I'm the only one, they're not easy for me, but I'd put myself in them anyway because it was important to be in, in those rooms. And I didn't feel nervous about being in those rooms. I never felt like I was any less than anyone else in those rooms because I was in the room. And so if I was in the room, then I had an equal contribution to share. So without further ado, my name is Tevin Kitto. This is 1000 Voices and here we have Natalie Campbell. Perfect. All right. So welcome to 1000 Voices. Thank you so much for your time this evening. <laughs> Natalie, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you. It's been a busy day, but I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you so much for your time once again. And yeah, I mean, when I was, you know, when I was doing my research and looking around for people to interview for this podcast, and I can't remember how I came across your profile in particular. I was just looking and I was like, blue water I was like what wow like I had no idea that um it was a black woman that was a CEO of that company because you go to like pretty much any and every restaurant in the UK and they've got blue water um blue water there so that was super interesting and I was excited to get you on here to discuss things discuss your journey and see what we can share with our community of listeners yeah I feel I feel like a, a best kept secret in the black community and it's not just me that there are there are other black women where I'm like we're low profile on social media we're just out here doing what we do and um you know for me it's exciting because I'm bumping into more and more black women leading businesses and that I didn't know of that I should know about uh, so we're here we're here that's perfect that's perfect well hopefully today after today a few more people will know about you and what you're doing as well so yeah <laughs> so just looking at your profile, yeah, when I was just doing some of my background research, I get a sense that you're a very driven person. It seems like even just looking at your LinkedIn page, there's like a load of different experiences there that you've been involved in, whether it's boards and entrepreneurial ventures and CEOs, and you've done a bunch of different things from when you were a teenager. And I get the sense that you're a very, very driven person. Looking back at your childhood, would you attribute that drive that you have now to any particular experience or your upbringing? Mm, uh, yes, 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 and uh, no. So, you know, my story is that I wanted to be a CEO from the age of 15, and I was inspired by 90s hip-hop. So you know, Puff Daddy, Jermaine Dupree, everyone was out here as the CEO of, of their record label, and I was like, right, that's that's my life. I... And at the time I wanted to be in the music industry as well. So I was like, right, I'm going to run my own label. I was interning at record labels. And so, you know, visually I had, um, uh, I guess a dream role to, to aspire to. 
But I also couple that with the fact that I'm Jamaican, you know, I come from a, a hardworking entrepreneurial family that rubbed off on me in some way, shape and form. I can't pinpoint any specific moment, which is why I also say sort of and no, but I know that I was constantly around entrepreneurial ideas, entrepreneurial conversations, and my family absolutely facilitated every and any idea I ever had. So that nurturing you know, has has paid off in um I guess in, in, in great detail over time. That's cool. I suppose in a way, cause you say you can and you can't, but I suppose in a way I believe in, you know, the power of the subconscious. And even if it wasn't, mm. what's the word, like very overtly drilled into just being in that sort of environment is just seeped into your subconscious in a way that yeah. you've got a drive and now, you know, and you're where you are now, but you've got a drive that's helped you to get to where you are now. So I suppose in a way you could say maybe your environment that you grew up in helped you to become the person you are now? Yeah, for, from that sense, definitely. But I, what I would also say is that within my family, it's, it's almost normal. It's like, of, of course, you'd be running your own business. And, you know, of course, you'd be doing this. And of course, you'd be doing that. Like, what, what, what else were you doing with your life? Um, and that is the expectation for everyone in the family. You, you should be doing the best you possibly can. So that, you know, there's no claps or brownie points around here. It's kind of like, yeah, come on. Like, get with it so yeah it's I don't think as a family we're not aware of it it's it's the minimum expectation of how you show up as a Campbell that's cool all right great and what was the area you grew up in like as well what was the family dynamic growing up I'm northwest London Wilsdon proud love my hometown (laughs) what was the area like uh, that you grew up in Mm, um so I grew up I was raised by my grandparents so I grew up sort of initially in an area that was very culturally diverse with families from the Caribbean Irish family um yeah I had I went to a a very mixed school um lots of children from South Indian parentage as well and you know it was it was a, a little bubble I would say. And then as I got older, I I pretty much lived at home on and off until I was 30. As I got older, the area changed, but it it always felt like home. And it had its own, you know, definite rough parts. There were times you'd come home and the road would be blocked off because there was a shooting at the end of the road. But there's something, I guess, that's a London story, right? But there's also something about when a place is home, it always feels safe to you. And so I always felt safe at home. I traveled, um, you know, two buses and a bit to get to school in, in Barnet. And that was sort of a, a greener version of, of Brent. But still, you know, I always felt like Northwest London and my pocket of Northwest London was the best place in the world to grow up. Perfect. All right. And you spoke about you, you wanted to become a CEO. You was inspired by, you know, that 90s hip hop culture and vibe that was going on at the time. Did you, was there any, how do you put it? Would you, was there any sort of, fear associated with going down that path especially knowing there's no when you go to school they you know we're taught that you get a nine to five and that's sort of the normal path to go down the more well-trodden path the easier path you could even say was any fear associated with going down that ceo path no because that conversation was never had i think my teachers saw that i had a creative spark they saw my entrepreneurial capability you know i was the girl in school i'd open up my blazer and i'd have pens for sale like I used to go to the US um, when actually people didn't travel that often and I'd go to, 
not not Costco, but whatever the equivalent, like a Best Buy or, or something. I can't remember the exact name and get all of these jazzy pens that you couldn't get here. And I'd sell them out of my blazer. I set up the school tuck shop and I would sell sweets. The school didn't want me to do it. So I got the sixth formers to drive me to, um, you know, a supermarket. And, and so the, the idea of a nine to five was never a discussion. I think I had one career session and I said, I want to be a CEO. And the career person was like, okay. Um, and then again, like I said, at home, it was always that you can do whatever it is that you want to do. So there was never any fear. I didn't know that I was not going to be a CEO. I didn't know that I was not going to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know any of the, these things. I didn't know that life was hard until I got to my 30s. I pretty much had rose-colored glasses on for a very long time, which had benefited me massively. For sure. Okay. All right. Let's talk about you being a CEO then and your first time being a CEO. So what was the first business that you worked on and what was that experience like in that setup? Yeah. Well, so it probably it wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a CEO, but when I went to university before I opened Morgan, I actually set up an event company. Um, I think it was called CC UK London, I think, which was Campbell Communications London, I think. Um, maybe it was something yeah. else. Uh, but, uh, and that was sort of a family business, sort of everyone used to have something that based on Campbell something. Um, and so I did student club nights and my aunt was the female DJ in Rampage. So I used to get Rampage to come up and do R&B nights because I was in Lancaster and I don't know what kind of music they were playing, but it was not music that I could dance to. So I thought, right, there must be other people that are into R&B. Let me do these club nights. It was an absolute pain in the butt. Um, so I then started to do open mic nights and I think I did a Lancaster Idol. Um, so I, I was basically doing anything to sort of do music and and be be a CEO, but I didn't call myself a CEO at that at that time. Um, even when I opened Morgan, I didn't think of myself as a CEO. I thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I thought of myself as a as a as a retailer. Thought of myself as someone that was building a retail business. I think the point at which I really called myself a CEO was when I got to Baloo. Even at a very good company, I didn't call myself a CEO. Um, I called myself a, you know, a co-founder. Um, the CEO title really stuck and I really relaxed into it when I joined Baloo. That's really cool. And it's interesting, you know, the, that, um, was it CCUK London, the events company you just spoke mm -hmm. about then. I don't think that's very well documented. I haven't really come across it too much, actually, when I was looking. I came across a lot of material on Morgan and, you know, a very good company. And... It, yeah, it was a couple of years. And actually, when I set up Morgan, I set it up under that company or a different company. I can't remember. But, you know, the, for the most part, it, you know, when you're doing this at 19, you don't really think about it as being a big part or back then i think now everyone is running a business you know everyone is thinking about their company name back then the idea of, of being an entrepreneur and running a business whilst also going to university was absolutely alien so i didn't catalog it in the same way i just had a legal entity that enabled me to have a business bank account i called it sort of the family name because that felt like it was sort of an, an honor to the family um it wasn't until I set up a very good company that I understood the connection between an actual limited entity and the business you run and the importance of, of names. That's cool. All right, let's talk about your experience in Morgan then a bit. So yeah, for actually, let's talk about Morgan. So for people who don't know 
what Morgan is and Morgan was. Can you explain what Morgan was now? And uh, yeah, what that experience was like when how you set that business up in the first place? Yeah. So Morgan was a high street clothing brand. Um, in the 90s, it was killed by Primark. It used to do sort of off the runway clothing, but at a much higher price point. And the reason it was killed by Primark was that you know, we were selling pairs of jeans for 120 quid and Primark was selling them for 10. Um, equally, as a, as a brand, it sort of sat alongside Topshop and others, but it was the higher end of that. So we used to have a lot of, I would say, what we now call bags come in and sort of get a full Morgan outfit. Um, and so I started working there at the age of 16. I worked in the store in High Street Kensington. I had an amazing boss and I stayed with the company pretty much until I got to university. And so when I was in, in Lancaster, I was thinking about the sort of business I wanted to run. And I actually thought I was gonna open a coffee shop because um, I was looking for what was unique to Lancaster, You know, what was uniquely missing from Lancaster. And there was a top shop. I think there was a myself fridge. There was a new look. So clothing wasn't front of mind. And um, I was going down the coffee route. I was reading a book called Anyone Can Do It by Bobby and Saha Hashimi, who opened Coffee Republic, which was the sort of the well-known coffee chain over and above Starbucks back then. And I was following that blueprint. I came back to Lancaster after a summer break and a cafe Nero had opened. And I thought, actually, if they've got a prime location, coffee probably won't do very well. So let me do what I know. And that's when I started to look at, at retail and, and look at Morgan. And luckily it was a franchise. So I bought into the franchise and I had the franchise agreement to run in Lancaster. So very serendipitous or or not, you know, for some people the, that that's what the universe had planned. But for me, it felt like an easy transition because I knew the business inside out. That's great. And with Morgan, so how long were you running that before the business, well, before Primark came about and done whatever they'd done and be think difficult? Yeah, so I was probably nearly two years. And so I say Primark killed Morgan. From a brand perspective, the overarching company in the UK wasn't doing well as soon as Morgan hit. But for me as a franchisee, I could have still operated. We were doing fine. It's that the parent franchise company went into administration. So we legally, there were multiple franchisees around the, the country. We legally were not allowed to operate. So I had no choice but to close. And I tried to rebrand. I tried to think about alternative ways of, of using this retail premise that I had. Um, but the reality was is that Morgan was such a strong brand name in, in Lancaster that no other brand that people you know, sort of knew didn't know would have would have sufficed. And so in the end, I had to, to wind up the company and you know, a lesson there on for me was was cash flow and, and personal debt. So I had a huge amount of personal debt that I had to pay off over a period of time. But you know, I wouldn't take that experience back because it, it taught me a lot about hard work. And I set up a, you know, my next sort of business where I thought about other ways to to hustle hard and make money because I had to pay off this debt. I had no choice but to, you know, work three or four jobs. So there was a there was a gift in that as well. Yeah, for sure. And when you started up Morgan, well, I suppose Morgan was like the second major business you can say that you worked on. You had the events thing and then you had other entrepreneurial ventures before that as well. But when you started, particularly with Morgan, when you started that, was there anything that surprised you? Like that you had never, you hadn't read about in any book or that you hadn't discovered through any of your other ventures beforehand? No, and I'm, I'm a geek, right? 
So I went into opening Morgan and I knew everything. So A, so product wise, I knew everything about the product because I'd worked for the brands for so long. I knew everything about the ethos and the values. I knew the product line names. I could reel them off in my sleep. Um, my dad was a property developer for a really long time. So in terms of doing the shop fit, I knew a lot about the shop fit. So, you know, getting fire alarm systems and materials, all of that was, was really easy. Um, and I'd read every single book under the sun. I can see your bookshelf behind you. Like I just consumed every <laughs> single book about entrepreneurship and building a business that I possibly could. So I didn't feel like I was operating from a place of not knowing. I felt like I had every single blueprint, roadmap, business plan under my belt. And equally, I was also building my business plan to submit as my university dissertation at the time. So there were no um, surprises because all of the money was accounted for to the T. I knew what my marketing strategy was. Online wasn't an option back then, like the internet, like Facebook didn't exist. And it's hard for people to believe, but if you know Facebook didn't exist, therefore iPhones didn't exist, therefore Instagram didn't exist. So the thought of selling online was a low possibility. So it was really nailing that in-person experience. Um, and so no, I, you know, I, I felt invincible pretty much. That's really cool. And something that is very, I feel anyways, I feel that in order to correct me if, you, if I'm wrong in your own experience, but I feel that a lot of people that are successful in their own right, in whatever field they're being in, success doesn't necessarily mean you've got a million followers or a million pounds or whatever, it's just whatever they personally define as success. But I feel that for people to be very successful in whatever field they're successful in, I feel that you need to really, really believe in yourself in a way and sometimes you see people when they speak in media or interviews or whatever and it comes across as if they're very self-centered or they're you know they're whatever but i really believe that though and then i get that vibe from you as well it's like you started this business you were very young <laughs> very young when you doing this business and taking on massive debt and everything like that but you believed in yourself you, was, you felt like i was invincible and it was going to work either way even if it doesn't work it's going to work uh do you feel like that's do you feel like that kind of a mindset is important to have for any entrepreneur? Massively. If you don't back you, no one else is going to back you. No investor is going to back you. Your family and friends won't back you. You know, the people you need on your team won't back you. If you're not the first person that says, look, I will make this work. It, it doesn't mean the exact idea that you're having at that exact moment is the idea you're going to make work because you can pivot, you can shift, you can change. But you backing you means, right, I am going to wake up every single day and make sure that mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, I am prepared for the journey that I am on. And no matter what someone says to me, no matter how many no's I hear, I'm going to get up and I'm going to put one foot in front of the other to get to where, I, to get to where I'm going. And, you know, I, I do think in some cases that conversational narrative can come across as self-centered but I think it's a unique thing that entrepreneurs have where they just believe in themselves and who they are. And I wouldn't ever, ever, ever change that. It's having a high sense of agency means that entrepreneurs get more done than most people can do in a lifetime because they just believe. With, with On that belief part, what would you, where would you say your belief in yourself come from is it just going back to your childhood again and having that 
community around you of your family and whatnot like where where did that belief come from for yourself yeah absolutely you know family I, I wasn't told no you can't do this I think when people are go maybe less so now but definitely before entrepreneurship became the cool thing or being an influencer and having an alternative career became a cool thing when you said to someone this is what I want to do if it was if it was outside the usual nine to five you'd hear a lot of judgment I'd never had that you know to your question earlier about about fear I was never told no I was never told well, this isn't something that can happen. I was never told, well, you can't do that or you don't know enough people or you don't have the skills or you're not this enough. I was never, I was always encouraged to believe I was enough. Um, and therefore I always thought myself as, as enough um, and believed I was enough. So there's that. There's also, you know, going back to the puff daddy bit, rappers think they are everything. And then some. And so I was really modeling what <laughs> I saw. You know, if you were in Bad Boy, like you were proudly a part of, of Bad Boy. Buff Daddy was in every single video because he was like, I am the CEO. So all I was doing was modeling what I knew. And then going back to being Jamaican, Jamaicans do not say they are coming second in anything. So, I, you know, I, I do, it's that sort of deep down innate Jamaican fire and blood in that, you know, if, if you're alive, then you better go for it. That's real cool. And hearing you talk about Puff Daddy back then, like I just got all these images coming into my head. Like I'm a visual, I, sometimes my mind goes places and I'm thinking of like him dancing around in like every Biggie video yeah. back in the 90s. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for sure, that's really cool. So just on that point, so you're, think, you know, you're thinking about him dancing around in those videos. He is still here. I mean, close to a billionaire churning out businesses. You know, now it's moved on to Ciroc. The thing that he, you know, taking your point of belief, he really believed that he was was close to being godlike. And so, yes, for, for a lot of people, it was annoying having this guy dancing around in, in videos and lots of people thought it was a gimmick. But he had a plan and he knew what he was doing. And I think that's a key piece of advice for anyone that's thinking about their entrepreneurial journey. Not everyone will get the things that you do to get to where you're going. But as long as you know that there's a plan and you're consistent in the things that you're doing, it will come good. For sure, for sure. Yeah, all, all boils down to just believing in yourself, I suppose. Having that very strong belief in yourself and in what you bring to the table. So I want to talk about your the next major business that you founded, which was a very good company. Now, something I don't, I didn't necessarily get from when I was looking at you or looking at your profile, something I didn't necessarily get was the how do I put it like the 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 step by step, the pros the thinking process that went into founding each business that you founded and what's interesting now just speaking with you now is that you spoke about okay you've done the events company when, when you were at uni because they didn't have music that you would enjoy dancing to or you wanted to do the coffee um, shop but then when Cafe Nero came you said oh, it isn't going to work anymore but you was looking for gaps in the market all the time and then Morgan again there was like a gap okay we're going to Lancaster's my spot. Like I've got this. I'm locking this. I'm locking this town down, and we're going to do what we got to do here. But you've always had that. It's not like obviously you're a doer and doing what you got to do, but you're thinking very strategically as well about everything you're doing mm -hmm. with a very good company. So first of all, for that, just for people who don't know what a very good company is, could you explain what that is, and also what gap was that business filling? 
and you've hit the nail on the head because it was totally a gap to be filled. So very good company was a social innovation agency and our focus was purpose, sustainability, um, human centered design concepts that would enable businesses to give back to the communities that they operated in. Um, again, in 2011, it was a gap. People didn't get why we were doing what we were doing. But what I'd noted was that you had big businesses, so your Marks and Spencer, you know, your Virgin Media's, your Channel 4, saying that they wanted to have an impact on the world. And that might have been an environmental impact. It might have been something to do with people. And there wasn't really necessary a framework for them to make it happen. And I noticed that because I was working in um, an enterprise promotion charity at the time, and I was running a big corporate CSR program for Virgin Media. Um, and there were lots of things about the workplace and the way of world of work that I wanted to challenge. And I knew that in my next business, because I'd come from a product business and I'd you know, emotionally been burnt from a product perspective, I thought, right, let me try consulting because all, all I need is my brain for consulting. It's low overhead. Um, as long as I've got great people that know how to think well and know how to execute, we can make it happen. And so um, we started off with a project for Virgin Media. So again, serendipitously, I was running this project in-house, an organization, that organization closed and we took Virgin Media in as our, our first client, which for an agency, it's amazing to have that sort of brand on the books from day one. And for them, we were building out their Virgin Media Pioneers program, which was helping young entrepreneurs video chronicle their startup journey on this platform that Virgin Media had built. So I was firmly in my space of young people and entrepreneurship and, you know, giving opportunities to people that look like me, because all of the opportunities at, at that point, you know, whether it was funding, was talking about entrepreneurship was very much still targeted at a mainstream, um, typically wealthy white male audience. And again, I'm saying this, this was before Facebook. You know, this was before Instagram. So the ability to just jump online and talk about your business did not exist. So we were creating that opportunity from scratch. We were giving people flip cams. I know it's it's going to seem really alien to anyone listening, but you didn't have phones that could that could do video. So people had a flip cam and a netbook and they had to record and download and upload to a website. So anyway, so that, that's, what, that's what we were doing for Virgin Media. And then for Marks and Spencer, we were helping them think about how they put people at the heart of one of their Plan A initiatives. Now, Plan A was Marks and Spencer's way of saying, we want to be better for people and planet. And this is our plan for how, how we do it. And there are a number of objectives. The objective that we delivered to was training half a million of their workforce around the world in um, human rights awareness, mental well-being, environmental considerations, you know, lots of areas that are really you know top of top of mind now we were doing this in 2012 2013 um you know even the name lots of people are like why are you calling your company a very good company like what does it mean people would be confused when i'd say it they'd be like okay but what's the company called and i'd be like it's called a very good company it's it does what it says on the tin sort of name um and so i do feel like it was you know in setting up a very good company I noticed a gap in the market, but I also noticed a gap for a different way of doing things. A, the name. B, we had a four-day work week back then. You know, now everyone's talking about a four-day work week. This was the way we started the company in 2011. We had cool offices in Shoreditch. Like, we, you know, we did that whole, whole thing. And I had an amazing time setting it up. I has, had an amazing time 
running the company, but I then also learned something else about running a consulting business in that at some point you have to compromise and you have to work with people that you don't like on projects that you don't believe in. And that was one of our principles that we would not do that. But to grow and to be seen as, you know, a successful agency, I would have had to have compromised and I wasn't willing to do that. So that's when I started to step back and think about where I go next. But a very good company operated for five, six years, um, probably even a bit a bit longer, sort of with other stuff sort of then starting to take take precedence. That's really cool. With a very good company, what experiences before that led you to want to start a business that was very how do you like you know very you, you giving back to society or giving back to the world what experiences led you to believe that's what you wanted to focus on so I, I was a board member of unlimited well I was I have a non-exec portfolio that runs it alongside my executive career and so I had been a board member for a number of charitable organizations I was working in a charity um, I joined the board of unlimited, which is the foundation for social entrepreneurs. And so this concept of not just entrepreneurship, so not just the puff daddy, pure, you know, make products, sell products, people enjoy products, but actually make something that's better for the world, make something that's better for people, make something that's better for the planet. I, I started to think, oh, I can be a social entrepreneur. That actually chimes with me a lot more. I think wealth is really important. I believe in money. I do not believe in greed. And you know, people say, where did that come from? I'm like, I don't know, but I just, the, the concept of greed to me, I, I, it, it, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't connect. And so I really found my sweet spot of, oh, I can be a businesswoman, I can be an entrepreneur, I can be a CEO. And all of the effort that I put in means someone else gets to live better. Someone gets to feel good. Someone gets to do some good. Like, why would I not go down this path? And that really drove the way we thought a very good company. And it wasn't just the projects we did. It was also how we built the team. Um, and that's why it's sort of the rule of not working on projects that we didn't believe in or with people that, you know, we didn't like. That's why it was really important because as soon as you compromise on how you get your money in, you start to compromise on some of those other values too. Mm, for sure. Okay. And something I want to touch on. So, what would you say your experience in running your businesses has been as a black woman? Do you feel like it's been unique? Do you think it has been different in any way? And have you had any unique challenges associated with that? So I've had to reflect on this a lot because over the years, as people have become more comfortable talking about race and as I've become more comfortable talking about race, because there's a point where you just didn't talk about it, right? Um, I've had to really think about whether or not what I thought was true is true. And I'm gonna say actually it is true. I didn't feel the barriers of being a young black woman with a shaved head, with tattoos until I got to my thirties. Um, I was an entrepreneur, no matter what, I was gonna walk through the door, run through the door, jump on the table, cut down the table, break through the ceiling, ignore the ceiling, do it my way. It was just my entrepreneurial nature. What I started to notice when I was in my 30s was that people with, in my mind, less talent, less desire to actually make a difference were succeeding. Typically, they were white and male. Um, and I just thought, okay, if I've worked this hard for so long, and remember in my mind, this is from the age of 15, so I've been working since the age of 15, I was like, oh, if they get to where I am 
just having woke up yesterday and decided they want to do this, maybe it's not as fair as I think it is. That said, um, did I let it stop me or hold me back? No, if I wanted something, I would get it. If there was a room I wanted to be in, I would be in there. I'm an introvert by nature. Um, so I don't always find being in environments that, I wouldn't say that aren't welcoming, but being in, in environments where I'm the only one, they're not easy for me, but I'd put myself in them anyway because it was important to be in, in those rooms. And I didn't feel nervous about being in those rooms. I never felt like I was any less than anyone else in those rooms because I was in the room. And so if I was in the room, then I had an equal contribution to share. And then now, you know, post George Floyd, and I say post George Floyd, and I don't mean it to say that that's when anything really changed. And I posted about this, you know, I remember Stephen Lawrence, I remember Rodney King, like, you know, black people have not been treated fairly since the dawn of time, um, but specifically in a um, post-George Floyd world, the difference is that white people are now more aware. And so the thing that I have to deal with is white people apologizing or making an assumption that they need to create space for me. And I'm like, dude, read my CV. You, you don't, it's almost in people, in white people becoming more aware they are inadvertently taking some of my agency away. So and when I say agency, my ability to believe that I can do anything I want to do on my own terms, because they're trying to accommodate. And it's it's just very clunky. And so I'm, I'm trying to work out what that means and how I feel about it. But I absolutely get that there is a generation of young people that need that accommodation, that need those spaces created for them. Because I didn't have them, I've never needed them. And so I'm adjusting to what it means. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I feel that, especially the the George Floyd incident. I don't even know you wouldn't even call it an incident, but that whole George Floyd thing that happened was one of the craziest, in my eyes, anyway. Maybe because it was so publicized and so global in its nature, and we know that things have happened so much. And maybe because I'm older now, and you're older, and maybe you're a bit more self aware. But with that one in particular, when that happened, that was like crazy, like crazy, crazy, crazy. And I felt that a lot of people were trying to, I don't know, like you're saying, like people, a lot of white people were never comfortable talking about race anyways. And now after that, now everybody wants to talk about race, but maybe they're trying to over, over accommodate and whatever and all that kind of thing. But I'm always, I'm still of the mindset now where it's like, okay, great. Because to be honest, I do want to be able to talk to people about this kind of stuff. I don't want, I don't like mm -hmm. being the only black guy in the room and then not being, mm -hmm. feeling comfortable to talk about certain things because you don't yeah. want to be perceived in a certain way or anything like that. It's un it's sometimes it's uncomfortable. When you're the only one, it's uncomfortable sometimes mm -hmm. talk about these things. And mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. would like to, be able to talk about things like that. But I think that what's, what's, good about you as for you as a person is that I feel okay it's great to talk about these kind of things but at the same time I feel that we need to how to put we need to look towards what can we tangibly do as well as a people mm -hmm. you know so we we need to look towards what can we what moves can we tangibly make how can we you know move forward and set up our own businesses and become entrepreneurs and become CEOs and that kind of thing. Cause that's tangible progress 
for people as well. And I think that's important important distinction to make, I suppose, um, when it comes to all this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Creating, creating our own spaces, creating wealth um, on our own terms, creating our own uh, economic ecosystems. And it's absolutely happening. It, like I, I see it happening in a way that I don't think it would have happened had George Floyd not have been murdered. Um, but... I, what I would say is that as an older millennial, you know, I'm nearly 40 now, because I remember a time where you weren't allowed to talk about race, it does feel like a shift. And, you know, I, I don't know if lots of people would be willing to say this, but you know, as a black person, I'm now having to adjust to what white people now know or think now that they know and think a bit more than they did before. And it's not just an automatic thing where I'm like, oh, well, I'm black and you know, it's it's great. Actually, everyone has their own shift and adjustment and you know, a need to find out what their own story is, especially if you get asked publicly what you think. Like, I didn't know what I thought because I was just getting on with doing what I was doing. Now I actually have to sit down and think, what do I actually think about this? Mm, mm, for sure, for sure. So I want to talk about your position now, your most recent position. Well, one of you got so many positions, so it's, it's hard to keep up, but your position <laughs> as the CEO of Early Water. Um, you know, yeah, so I was saying just before we started how when I was looking around for people for this podcast and I come across um, yourself and I was like, oh, wow, like CEO of Early Water. And I was so surprised. And I called my wife over. I was like, look, look, look at this. Every restaurant we go to, there's Belly Water being served whenever we order water. And to look at that and then see the CEO of that company was a black woman was like, wow. It's like, wow, I, I, I didn't know personally. And I think that's very important, you know, to have that representation in mm. all of these different spaces, you know, and it's, it's something that people can look towards be like, wow, okay, wow, she's a CEO. And that means I can be a CEO as well. So like when you see it, then you can yep. believe it. So that's yep. an amazing thing. And I just want to talk about, first of all, so how did that belly water position come about? Yeah, so uh, I was sort of stepping at, back out of a very good company, thinking about what to do next. I'd sort of been traveling around. And before Baloo, I actually started working for the Royal Family. So I became the director of insight and innovation at the Royal Foundation. And I was working on um, projects there. And I, you know, I was I was happy and I was content. And then after a while, I there was a project that I was working on, and it was short term. And I just thought, okay, so where where do I want to be? What what is it that I've said I've always wanted to do? And I came back to this idea of wanting to be a CEO. And you know, I've said it. Maybe I've said the word serendipitous a few times on this. But the moment I said, right, I'm going to be a CEO, and I knew that I didn't want to start another business. Like I, I didn't have that energy in me. Someone I knew had the role for Baloo on their books. And I was just speaking to them the day before. It wasn't on their website. I spoke to them the next day. It was on their website. And I was like, okay, so the universe is sending me a message here. Um, I knew about Baloo. I knew Baloo's history because I knew the founder. Um, and what I love about Baloo is that you know we are a commercial business. I run a drinks company, but we give every penny of our net profit to WaterAid. So I know that when I'm getting out of my bed in the morning or, you know, I've had a long day, 
It's not because I'm making anyone super rich. Actually, I'm, I'm making a difference to someone's life. I'm making a difference to someone that doesn't have access to water. I'm making a difference environmentally. I'm making a difference in terms of challenging businesses to think about doing what they do in a, in a different way. Um, and so a bit like all of the roles in my life, it came about because I said, okay, this is now what I'm ready for. To your point around gaps, for me, there's a still a gap, even though Baloo is over 10 years old, there's still a gap in the market for Baloo. There's still a gap in the market for a drinks company that says, you know, we're going to go beyond just making lots of, of, of money to you know, ultimately pay shareholders. We're going to show that there is, there's a better way to produce our product. We're going to show that there's a better way to think about growth. We're going to show there's a better way to think about our people and our, our team. And I, I love every day that I have to wake up and solve a new new challenge. And I started in lockdown. So I started on the 2nd of, of March and we went into lockdown three weeks later. So there's been a whole other journey of, of learning and, and figuring out what being a CEO um, in an unprecedented time means. Yeah, it's a very interesting time to become a CEO of a company, that's for sure. Mm-hmm that sells to the hospitality industry yeah, oh yeah talk talk about bad timing <laughs> terrible <Yeah>. timing <laughs> when i was looking at the new you know what was interesting where did i see it i don't know if it was on the, the website or somewhere else i can't remember but it was it was a line somewhere about how most of the water we drink has been imported from other countries and i didn't even know that then then mm-hmm. i started to think about it, like oh it's true like what's it like evian where does evian come from thing comes to the french alps and Volvic comes from some volcano somewhere. San Pellegrino, it's Fiji. Yeah, San Pellegrino is Italian. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when you pick up a bottle of smart water and it's all being shipped all over the world. Um, and when you think about it, it's like, oh, oh. And so I have no beef with any bottled water company that produces in the UK. In, with UK made materials uh, but I do have beef with anyone that's shipping water into the UK that's what I'm like no and when I see a restaurant that's serving one of those brands I just and especially when they're talking about sustainability or produce and look I'm like but you're serving this brand of water that for me just means that you really don't know what you're talking about or you're greenwashing whatever it is that you're talking about I'm really boring when I go out with my friends. They're like, oh God, she's going to ask what water they serve. And I do. If I can't tell them any, be like, um, just before we sit down, what water do you serve? Or what brand of water do you serve? And they always go, like, no one asks that question. And either they know off the top, they know immediately and they'll say below, or they don't know. And I'm like, okay, well, we can't sit down until you tell me. My friends are like, oh gosh, here she goes. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's annoying for them, but I love it. Yeah, no, it's true though. But what's because I feel like a lot of brands, yeah, would like market themselves as being sustainable. But it's like I don't even know what the term is. I don't know if greenwashing is the right term. But it's like they market themselves as being sustainable, but they're not. They're not. Yeah, they're not really sustainable. Really, it's just a label. Like they'll call themselves fair trade or this or that. But then if you really look into the company in of itself, there's nothing sustainable about them. Like maybe they've pledged to give not. 0.1% of profits to someone and then they use that and brand it all over the website like yeah we're sustainable we're fair trade we're this or that 
but they're not really. They're polluting the planet. They're exploiting. They're doing all sorts of mad stuff um, in the operations. Hit the nail on the head. So the only so what I would say the only different bit though is if someone is labelled as fair trade or organic, they have generally gone through a process to get that certification, and so it does mean that something of what they're producing is fairly traded or something of what they're producing is organic. That doesn't necessarily then mean that the company as a whole is sustainable because they might still be using an unsustainable material in their packaging or they might have really terrible hiring practices or they might not be paying a fair wage um, or they might, as in in the UK. So what I want people to do is think, when you pick something up, who's behind this company? Right. Is, is the, you know, do I, would I, if I really knew who was behind this company, would I really buy this thing? Would I really give them my money? Or would I pick something else up? Or would I go without it? And as soon as I started doing that to myself, A, I saved myself a lot of money. But B, it means that I'm supporting more businesses that I actually know something about. Typically, those businesses are local. Typically, those businesses produce in the UK. They're really transparent. And they're doing some good for the planet. You know, no company is, is perfect. Baloo is not perfect by, by any, any means. But what we do is so open and transparent that we share everything that we do. We share how we're trying to reduce our carbon footprint. We, you know, for some people, they'll be like, yeah, but you still produce washing. You still put it in a bottle. Or, or you, and, you know, we use plastic bottles. We do use plastic bottles, but our bottles are made of 100% recycled material. So plastic waste exists. We're taking that plastic waste and turning it into a bottle that can be used again. And that bottle can then be recycled again. The carbon footprint to do that is a lot less than picking up a can of water. And so anyone that's like, oh, well, I've got my can of water in front of me. Yeah, do you know how much energy it takes to produce that can of water? And by the way, you know that aluminium still has to be extracted from the ground. So it's just, you know, people people don't do the work to educate themselves on, I guess, the sustainability journey that they're going on. They take a company's marketing message as sort of the gospel of um, them being better or sustainable. And what we really need to do is take more time to go, who is this company? Who owns this company? What are they really doing? And how much can I see into the way that they operate their business? I'll get off my pedestal now. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. I'd be interested to know what's the main focus or main focuses with Blue um, right now as in your time now. Yeah. So we, so when I inherited Blue, pretty much it was a mineral water business with a filtration, um, a growing filtration business on the side. And so filtration is our way of actually moving people out of the needs to have single use Project products in their in their supply chain, um, and so the filtration business is growing. We launched the filtration business in Hong Kong. We did that in lockdown, which was amazing. And we also launched tonics and mixers in green glass. And we went for green glass because it's the highest recycled content that you can have um, in a in a bottle. So again, it goes back to what I was saying about the environment. Okay, if we're going to produce something in a bottle, then surely we should be using the waste material that already exists as opposed to extracting new material out of the ground. So um, we, we've done that. And it, my goal, my, my team's goal is to increase our revenue to, to show that you can be a globally credible drinks brand that doesn't do over people and planet to get 
to the end goal. And actually our end goal, as per our, our articles, so our company articles and our, our registration, our end goal is to deliver the sustainable development goals. So one around water, one around reduction um, uh, of um, um, production and, and um, combating overconsumption. And the other one is about climate action. And so, you know, my objectives aren't anything other than doing good. And I had the privilege of being able to to change that and, and you know, make that so. Perfect. Right. I want to talk about something that it might sound a bit airy or whatever, but it's cool. I feel like you'll get it. Um, so you spoke about when you, um, before the blue uh, post that you got now, you put it out there and then the store, the position just became available and got made available to you. And then, you know, you're where you are now. And I read, where did I read this? Oh, I've been reading all over the place. Like whether, I don't know whether I heard it somewhere or if it was on your LinkedIn or somewhere, I can't remember where, but it was to do with the, the badass woman, which is again, something else. There's, there's so much on your resume. That we, we ain't gonna have time to go through everything. <laughs> but yeah. With that, with the badass woman's hour, yeah. You wrote that, what was it, that the universe, I think it was sometime in the making and the universe conspired to make it happen, to make that, that mm-hmm. you know, badass woman's hour happen. And that's yep. reminds me of a line from one of my favorite books. You might see the bottom of my book, of that book, and my bookshelf up there is that. What am I pointing at? That orange, the the alchemist. Yep. And I, I don't know, like I don't know if yep. you read it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite of lines course. in that book yeah. is, I'm I'm gonna paraphrase. Oh, I might be phrasing it a little bit wrong, but it's something along the lines of, when you want something enough, the universe conspires to make it happen for you. And I love that line. That's one of my favorite lines of all time. I've never forgotten it. It's the first day I read it. When I read that about what you said about badass women's out, that immediately. It's the truth, right? That that is that is the eternal truth. If you if you think something with all of your soul and you will it into being, and willing it into being isn't just sitting there every day saying this thing's gonna happen. You know, you put your foot in front of one another and you you act in accordance with the, the, the idea, the belief, the universe does conspire. For a lot of people listening, they'll say that's God and it's faith. Yes, wh- whatever you, you choose to, to categorize it. But that idea, for me, if, if I didn't know this thing, I don't think I would be who I am. But I fundamentally know that whatever I have in mind and I want to happen, if I really want it to happen, I will, it, it will manifest, it will appear. The, the right person, the right opportunity, like literally the link for something will just appear in my inbox. Like it, it just, it just happens. And it, you know, you were saying before, it's a bit woo woo woo. I, for people that have witnessed it and experienced it, it's not, cause it's just the way li- the, your life operates, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I agree. I agree. Anyway, it's that thing for sure. And you know what? You can even like kind of like link that with what you said about Puff Daddy and him being in. You know, we spoke about him being in every video, but he believed he really believed in himself, and mm-hmm. you know, he's where he is now. Or even with yourself, like from a teenager, you've really believed in what you've wanted to do, and then because of that, you know, you've been able to have an amazing career so far and do amazing things, but it starts with like really believing and then things fall into place, like people come into your life and yeah. the opportunities present themselves, you know, everything like that. So 
for sure definitely I, I believe that. i don't think it's weary myself reflecting or just as a ceo or being you've been a founder quite a few times and you're ceo right now and i've often heard from other people in those positions that it can be quite lonely do you feel that yourself and how do you cope with the pressures that come with being the head of an organization so other than so ceo bit aside being a leader is lonely being a leader of um of anything um and believing that something's going to happen if there isn't another person that shares the exact belief with you is lonely and so you can put it down to same in parenting right if two people are parenting and one person has a vision for how parenting is going to happen and the other person doesn't that parenting situation is is lonely um and so what i did when i started blue and, and i've always had co-founders actually as much as i'm an, an introvert i like the dynamic of bouncing off someone my coo at blue i asked her to be my co-ceo and that means that actually it's not lonely because there's someone else that's waking up that has exactly the same vision in mind and on a day where i'm not feeling my most energetic self she can pick it up when she's not feeling her most energetic self i can pick it up and there's a person that i can speak to that i don't directly line manage that i can have conversations with where there's no other internal dialogue right and and as much as um you know you can have equals within a team as soon as there is a hierarchy as soon as those people are trying to perform to metrics that you have put on the table whatever you say they're always going to be thinking what does this mean for how i need to show up for her or or or, or him or or they with charlotte it's a okay how do i need to show up for balu how do we need to do this thing for balu um and so i don't feel lonely at all in business um and i've learned that because i've learned from others that it can be lonely so again like going back to me being a geek and being a student of this i i know what makes running a business hard and so i remove those those barriers um if you know as, as soon as life teaches me a lesson i'm like okay what how do how do i implement this how do i make sure this doesn't happen again i'm a student of of being an entrepreneur i'm a student of being a business woman i'm a student i'm an apprentice to 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 being a, a ceo and i i i wear that hat happily so that things are easier for me and then hopefully i can share what i know with other people so it's easier for them have you got any examples of any of those barriers or lessons that you've learned yeah so one of them um so i call it the the three yeses so when i set up morgan um i realized that there were key moments key milestones that if i got yeses that morgan would happen regardless of whether i wanted it to or not and so i always say to people work out what your three yeses are that means this thing is this ship sailing whether you're on it or not so at morgan that was getting a license um from morgan the the franchise holder getting a loan from the bank and getting a lease for 10 years if those three things happened nothing was stopping me um it you know and 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 those three s's those moments are replicated throughout my career like who who do i need to get to say yes how, you know how does this yes impact 
um, my ability to, to move forward. No is a question. Um, so when someone says no to me, I don't go, oh, they said no. I go, oh, what I said was not chiming with what they thought. So let me rephrase what I said, or let me think about what they need to turn that no into a yes. So I always say no is a question. It's an opportunity for you to go away and do more work and come back with a different proposal or a different pitch. Um, and then, um, you know, my, my other business lesson is, and this is not, not mine, it's something that I was taught, is you need to know yourself, you need to be yourself, and you need to look after yourself. If you know yourself and you know your shadow side, so not just the good bits about yourself, who you are when you're an absolute demon, if you know that and you can articulate it to other people, it makes running a business much easier because there will be hard times. There'll be times when you just, just are unbearable to be around. Um, equally, if you know that you're a self-saboteur and you can see it coming, it means you can get out of your own way. If you know that you're someone that procrastinates, you know you need to put different ways of working in process. Being yourself, really important, goes back to what we were talking about, you know, being a black woman. I've never not shown up in a room as myself. I've never tried to over-assimilate. You know, I, I had a shaved head for a really long time. I had a mohawk for a really long time. I have tattoos, visible tattoos on my neck and my hands. I've never not been myself in those rooms. You know, when everyone was wearing a gray suit, I would rock up in a pink suit or a green suit or whatever I felt like wearing um, that that day. Uh, and I'm I'm really jovial and, and quite flippant. So when everyone's being really serious, I mean, I'm always the one to sort of just jump in and just break the ice or remind people that we're not saving lives. None of us are doctors out here. So yeah, let, you know, let's put some perspective <laughs> on this. And then the looking after yourself is, I had to learn to not be a slave to my career and make sure that I was taking time to have fun and step back. And it's the one thing that I've always, well, not always, that I've said in my 30s to other young entrepreneurs that I meet, because everyone's so in the hustle and everyone's looking over their shoulder at how, especially with this in a social media world, how fast other people are progressing. And what you do is you, A, you take yourself off your path. Your path is your path. You can't speed it up. You can't slow it down. It goes back to the manifesting. It's your path. It will happen when it's meant to happen. And so in the pursuit of being on the path and looking at other people, you forget to have fun. You forget to enjoy the moments where you actually made something that you didn't know was going to happen, happen. Um, you know, you don't take holidays. You don't pay yourself. I know lots of people that set up companies and that, you know, they weren't paying themselves. Just all of that. I'm like, no, you need to be kind to yourself. You need to love the time that, that you have that's not about work. Because then when you show up, in that working capacity, in that career capacity, you have so much more to give. That's perfect. And that's, yeah, that's really good actually. I like that part about looking after yourself. I feel like in the hustling bustle of trying to make it in whatever we're doing, a lot of people in a way, I wouldn't say lose themselves, but you just give too much of yourself away, I should say actually, without taking yeah. time to step Absolutely. back and really look after yourself and do things that you like doing for yourself. Clear your mind a bit, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. I want to, in your career, so just in your life, yeah, there's been, it's a strong sense of like a theme of entrepreneurship, whether it's you having founded your own businesses or whether it's you in other non-exec roles, helping to empower other businesses. So you've got like a number of different non-exec roles, but in a lot of them are to do with like helping other, particularly young entrepreneurs 
helping them in loads of different ways to get set up or whatnot. Uh, what is it about entrepreneurship in particular that you're drawn to? Why, why is it something that you feel is so important for young people to get involved in? So I bring this back to being a young black woman. So not just me, you know, everyone I grew up around, we all knew that the corporate structure wasn't going to embrace us in our current mold and form. And entrepreneurship was a level playing field. In my mind, if you had talent, you had tenacity, you had the right attitude, you could make it happen. And so in a pre-influencer world, I always thought that entrepreneurship was something that anyone, regardless of background, regardless of socioeconomics, regardless of family structures, regardless of the support around them, they could be who they wanted to be. And if they didn't believe it, you, know, you can pretend for a little while. Um, and so for me, being an entrepreneur is about freedom. If I could give anyone a gift, you know, my legacy hopefully is make, enabling someone else to feel more free. Um, entrepreneurship is the thing that delivers freedom. And it, yes, it's partly financial, but it's also in how your time is spent, the people you get to spend your time with, the things that you get to see, the environment that you're in. As an entrepreneur, you get to choose all of that. It's hard, but you still get to choose. And so I think it's an amazing pursuit um, that really can be done on merit for the most part. Perfect. All right. Let's reflect on your journey. What would you say so far, whether it's personal or professional, has been your highest high and your lowest low? Oh, highest high. I've had so many. Um, I always get a high when I make something happen that no one thinks is going to It's not really that no one thinks, just no one tried. So Badass Women's Hour, you know, there was no, you know, there were no other national radio shows with three women talking about feminist issues, primetime Saturday night. So I was like, I'll make that happen. Um, the role that I had at the Royal Foundation, the things that I got to do to do there, you know, so many highs, setting up a very good company. I was my early twenties, amazing. Morgan, amazing, writing a book, amazing. Um, but equally the travel that I've got to do as a result, the people that I've ha been able to meet, the friends that I have around me, a lot of them come from my entrepreneurial journey. Um, there are highs in that. It, the high I have now of really living life on my terms. Like I absolutely get to decide what I do second by second, minute by minute. Like I am as free as I can possibly has, as I've ever been in my whole life. The lows, I think it's those moments when I was younger where, you know, everyone else was out partying. Um, or doing what teenagers and people in their 20s should be doing. Um, I'm going to throw dating in there. There was just things that I was just like, don't, not really interested in because I'm on a, on a different path. And so I guess I missed out on some of my, some of the fun of my 20s. I get to make up for it now in my 30s though, mind you. And my 40s are going to be absolutely just one big party. Um, so I just delayed that bit, uh, you know, the lows, Morgan, um, closing Morgan, 
the debt as much as I learned from it. You know, it was a lot of debt to have when you're, you're 22, it was over 50 grand. Um, you know, just, just change, I guess, when you're wholly invested in something and you have to pivot in a business. That, that's their low points because it means that what you thought was going to happen hasn't happened. What I then always come back to, though, is that there's a plan. There's a bigger plan here. And this pivot is just me getting back on the path that I'm supposed to be on. Um, and again, you know, now I'm the age that I am. I never see a shift in circumstance as a negative. I'm just like, okay, well, this is this is part of the journey. This is what's meant to happen. So I'm just gonna just gonna follow it wherever it leads. Perfect. All right. What would you say has been your proudest achievement, again, whether personally or professionally, so far? I'm I'm yeah. I'm gonna say it's gonna sound big headed. I'm just proud of me. I'm proud of the fact that I get up every day and I adult and I show up for people and I'm a boss and I've given my 15 year old self the thing that I always wanted. Cool. That's perfect. And last question before we go into quickfire questions is a question I always just like to end with before quickfire, but I feel like you've already answered it, but I'll put it forward to you and we can go from there. What do you want your legacy to be? That, uh, I enabled someone, anyone, to feel good, do good, and live better. And ultimately, that means for me that they felt free. Great. Perfect. That was amazing. Thank you so much. All right. Let's go into the quick fire questions now. So let me come up. They're over here. All right. 10 questions. It's quick fire. So whatever comes to your head first. I feel the first few questions I think are just a bit easier than the ones as you go down might require a bit more thinking, but again, it's just whatever comes to head <laughs> first thing we, okay, we go with fine. that. Cool. All right. First question. What's your favorite movie? Love Jones. Perfect. All right. Next. What's your favorite book? The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Cool. Interesting. Three. Name a song that you can never get bored of. Uh, Be Happy by Mary J. Blige. Great. Next, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Oh, plantain. Love that. Or a potato. <laughs> With coffee. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Next, name three people that inspire you. Um, I'm going to say no one. Um, but my reason is because I think we put people on pedestals to fail. And so I, I'm inspired just by everyday people living their lives authentically. That's perfect. I love that answer, actually. All right. Next question. What's the best advice that you've ever received? Know yourself, be yourself, look after yourself. Perfect. Next. If you were to dedicate the rest of your life to one charitable cause, what would you pick? Anything to do with young people. Or young people living a better life. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Last two questions. What's the kindest thing that somebody's ever done for you? <laughs> Lent me money. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Can't go wrong with that. And last exactly. question. <laughs> What's one thing that people don't know about you? Uh, I have seven tattoos. 
Perfect. Great. Great. All right. So that's that. 1,000 voices done. Quickfire, you're good at the quickfire. Usually people find it a bit more difficult. <laughs> like you're quite good at them. Uh, I've been asked a couple of them before, so that definitely makes things easier. But you know, really, really, really great questions. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to hear what some of your other guests say as well. It's, that's how you build your, your new book yeah. list, right? And your new must-watch movie list and, and your new Spotify or Apple yeah. playlist. Yeah, I've got so many books now <laughs> to go out and buy. That one you said sounds interesting. The bunk, the monk who sold his Ferrari. Never heard of it, but the title itself is captivating. It's of the same vein as of, of The Alchemist. Ah, I love The Alchemist. Okay, it sounds like I'd like. I'll definitely add it to my list. All right. So just to wrap up. So actually, before we wrap up, I just want to thank you once again for coming to the podcast. Very, 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 very thank much you. appreciated. And I loved hearing about your journey and hearing about your drive and your determination to get, you know, to do what you've done. Um, definitely very inspiring. I think, I think that people, myself, anyway, as an individual, have taken a lot away from what you've said today. And I feel that people who do listen to this are going to be able to take quite a lot away from it as well. So thank you once again, very, very much appreciated. Just to wrap up, thank you. do you have any last remarks? And also where could people find you if they wanted to find you as well? Last remarks, just the time is now. If you're thinking about doing something, you're thinking about changing your life, you're thinking about leaving something, starting something, going somewhere, just go, start it, leave it, be it. Whatever it is, the time is is now. There's no better time than right now to, to do the thing. Um, and where can people find me? The best kept secret, um, Instagram, I think it's just Natalie D. D. Campbell, uh, but I'm I'm easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. That was that. Thank you once again, Natalie, for your time today. Very much appreciated. Thank that was you. One Thousand Voices. This is Natalie Campbell, and we're out. Okay, and that's the end of the interview. Thank you for tuning in once again. It's always very, very much appreciated. Please do leave a comment or a review wherever it is listening to this and let us know what you thought about the interview and what some of your key takeaways were from this interview because I know that there were a bunch of takeaways from this interview. Very good, very inspiring, very, very insightful. Next week, we've got another very, very, very special guest on the podcast as always. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast on whichever platform you're listening to this on. The subscription really does help us out, so don't be shy. Subscribe wherever it's listening to this and follow us on our social media pages at a thousand voices UK so that you can see some previews from the episode before it comes out. It will drop on Tuesday on all major podcasting platforms Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. And then the YouTube video will follow on later on. So follow us so that you can keep up to date with that. But that's that for now. Thank you for tuning in. This is 1000 Voices. That was Natalie Campbell, and we're out.